Hotel Andre in downtown Seattle, 4th and Virginia. Come see us sometime. Uh, we have a house full of um, feisty folks having breakfast with us this morning. They all bought their tickets on hotstovesociety.com. Uh, it com- I think it's 25 bucks. It comes with breakfast and kind of lukewarm of coffee sometimes. <laughs> and great company. And great company. It's the company. And you get to see my mother's stove, which joined, us, right. about, uh, joined us about, what, two months ago? From a long trip across country, I had it packed into one of those pods. All the West Coast kids. It's a beautiful. It's a beauty. I mean, it's worth beauty. Coming yes. It's in worth on. a trip just to idle. That's right. Just uh, it's my, it's my new. Uh, what do you call that when you have a religious? It's uh, your it's muse. My, it's, it's my muse. It's my icon. Something like that. Your spiritual center. It's my. It's my spiritual spirit animal. <laughs> there you go. We have cooked many spirit animals in that stove. <laughs> Um, we record our show on Thursday mornings from 9 to 11 at the Hot Stove, so come on and join us sometime. Uh, we invite you to uh, buy a ticket, as I said earlier, at the Hot Stove. And also, if you want, you can watch us uh, live on YouTube, our right. YouTube channel, Tom Douglas & Co., and you can pick up our YouTube Ooh, channel. Oh, you can even download this show during the cost? week. Yeah, you can subscribe, but uh, if you subscribe it, it makes it easier for us to keep it on the air for free. That's right. It doesn't cost you a nickel. It's just they like to see that number of sub- subscribers out there. And, and based on the um, responses we had to the contest that you ordered last week, there's an enthusiastic subscription audience. Oh, really? Who won our... Are they we have f- until tomorrow to oh, enter. Okay, so good. We're still taking entries. Should we tell them what the contest was about? No, no these guys will cheat. Oh, they will cheat. <laughs> uh, that is the velvet... Voice of Pamela Hinckley, our producer. <laughs> Sean is here today, our technical producer. Of course, the chef in the chapeau. You've already heard him. That's right. Chef, we got a big show today. St. Patrick's Day is coming down the pike. We need to do a little research on what people in Ireland are eating. Do you suppose they celebrate it there? Uh, <clears throat> I, think, I think they're probably looking at Americans might. going... Oh, it's, it's good that somebody's advertising our country. Somebody's buying Irish whiskey is what it's good about. Uh, Top Chef season number 10 winner, Kristen Kish, zooms in to tell us about her new National Geographic series. Now, what is it, Miss Hinckley, that uh, she wouldn't fly here to Seattle to be on our show? Does, does she not know the power of our airwaves? I, I can't believe that she's so busy with National Geographic and being an right. international star that she wouldn't come. She's checking out restaurants at the end of the world. The most modern Mouthwatering food image on Instagram last week. What is that all about? You're going to see it. We're going to put it up on the screen. Well, what about our home listeners? We'll talk They're about it. Have to go get it with colorful language. At least we're not talking about TikTok again. Last week's show was all about TikTok. <laughs> Pamela thinks she's 12 years old. <laughs> I'm regressing. <laughs> Susan Gravely is uh, the founder of Vietri uh, Tableware. It's just that kind of that fancy Italian pottery. She also has stuff, I guess, that's a little bit more, not, not quite so flowery. Uh, wine enthusiast Cyril Fresher is, uh, did I say that right? Fréchier? Yeah, what I said. Offer some tasty recommendations for your, for your beverage needs. And, of course, we're going to finish the show with our Food for Thought Tasty Trivia Challenge. And we already have a volunteer from the audience. Uh, you're, you're not allowed to wear those glasses because they're distracting. <laughs> we won't be able to think she's about got our full, answers. She's got two sets of eyes. Today's questions are by our longtime friend, Becky Guzak. Uh, Chef, what is your taste of the week? 
I don't know. What's my taste of the week, Tom? Oh, I, that's the, great. Okay, I'll taste start of the then if you don't know. No, your taste of the week. My taste of the week is I went to a little restaurant in Ballard. You know, I drive through Ballard just to kind of get angry sometimes. Because <laughs> the restaurants are so busy there in Ballard. It's just crazed. So last night I had my dream Ballard trip, which was every restaurant I drove by was empty. Really? Yeah. It was, it was 6.15, 6.30, and they were all empty, and I felt at home there. Because sometimes in downtown Seattle on a weeknight, it feels that way. <laughs> uh, but then I go by a little restaurant called Asadero. It's a Mexican yeah. steakhouse, I would call it. Uh, and maybe Argentinian, or I'm not exactly. I think it's Mexican. Anyway, packed to the gills. Outdoor, indoor, bar, everything. There's one seat left of the bar. I snuck in, and there's a reason why it's full. It is delicious, and it's approachable. I wouldn't call it super cheap. The average steak is probably 40 bucks or 50 bucks, but the portions are huge. The flavors are tremendous. Uh, I had a little paria, a grilled steak. I can't remember the second part of the name of the dish, but it's $46. Uh, I asked them what cut of meat that they were using. Uh, tenderloin, like uh, off the cuff, <laughs> just tenderloin. You know, usually you, really? know, you think it's going to be skirt steak yeah, or yeah. hanger steak. Or, you know, no, tenderloin. It comes, it's, it said eight ounces of tenderloin on the menu. It was 16 ounces of tenderloin. Oh, oh, wow. And it comes with a chili relleno, some refried beans, delicious little kind of a chimichurri type sauce, and then four other sauces on the side, pickled onions and pico de gallo oh and salsa, red salsa, green salsa, fresh tortillas. Corn tortilla? Yeah. It was delicious. Wow, that sounds really Super good. Super fun sitting at the bar. The bartender was great. Made Eating a terrific martini. Stick. You know, I'm on, I, I don't drink anymore. Uh. <laughs> I love the silence in the room and Pam going, uh. Well, I'll say I'm down to two drinks a day. I'll okay. say that. <laughs> That's what you call don't drink anymore. So I have to nurse my first drink, like in my martini or my scotch. I have to nurse it for hours just to try and make it through the night. And so I, I, just, I understand the pain. I just keep adding water to the dregs of my gin and just I have flavored water now. So, the, yeah. And the interesting thing about it is that I went to get my physical, uh-huh. and it says there, how many drinks a week do you have? And the last time I had my physical, I said 14, which was a total lie. But now I'm actually telling the truth. <laughs> and, they, and they don't believe it. And, they and go, now they don't believe it. They the don't, don't believe you. They go, yeah. you're still drinking exactly. too much. Whatever. Your turn. Um, went to revisit Off Alley a um, couple nights ago and had a tremendous experience again. And I just want to remind people and folks that uh, it's a very small restaurant in Columbia City, but they practice some very good culinary technique. And um, first thing that comes to mind is the first thing I got, which was a uh, almost like a chicken liver mousse of gizzard and heart of squab, mm-hmm. which are actually local fresh squab from from Chinatown. The, from the, no, no, from the peninsula. And uh, there is a, a, a person that's actually raising squab in the peninsula, and that was very delicious. It was done super well and. I know it sounds kind of esoteric and gross to some, but it was actually very beautiful. What like would the best sound gross about a puree ever. of heart and liver? I can't imagine. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> exactly. That was a good glass of Cote Duron. <laughs> goes down like nobody's business. Was it a mousse? Was it flavored with something? Did it have a particular herb or spice? Or? No, it had all kind of seasoning, and, and uh, I can't tell you all the seasoning that was in there, but definitely well-seasoned, beautifully rounded, smooth, like... Mm-hmm. A beautiful chicken liver mousse. You know what I love about that, when the people do that, is that they're using the whole critter. Right. When, they, when they're well, I mean, cooking. when you when you get a fresh squab from the peninsula, that's farm raised right here in the, in our backyard, yeah. which is a rarity because it's there's not many squab farm. 
Um, it's something to, uh, yeah, you use everything from beginning to end. So for those of you who don't know, squab is another name, a more acceptable it's name a, for a pigeon. It's a farm-raised pigeon. Farm-raised pigeon, yeah. It's never seen Pino Square. <laughs> Doesn't know where it is. So coming up, what do people in Ireland really eat on St. Patrick's Day? Is it really corned beef and cabbage? We're going to find out when we come back on Cairo Radio. It's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Stove Kitchen on Cairo. You can hear our audience is uh, very excited to be here uh, because they're wondering, they're at the edge of their seat like Pamela, uh, about what do people, what do Irish people in Ireland actually eat for St. Patrick's Day? So for me, St. Patrick's Day has always been, my mother made the, the kind of the New England, what we call the New England boiled dinner, you know, which is uh-huh. boiled corned beef and cabbage and boiled potatoes and carrots. And, and then uh, she would put mint. Oh, no, that was Easter. I was thinking mint and jelly, but I'm trying to, maybe she didn't do anything for a sauce. Maybe what, some whole fridish. What did they do in France when it was St. Patty's Day? Uh, nothing. <laughs> we actually don't know about St. Patty's Day in France. We just go to Ireland and go home. Oh. What saint do you cherish in, in France? All of them. All of them. Of course, not St. Patrick, though. Well, it's, Patrick, uh, it's probably St. Patrick in France as well. But okay. I'm so, it, Pamela, can you one. tell us, um, it is not apparently corned beef and cabbage that they celebrate with in Ireland. No. So much about the way the holiday is celebrated now was invented outside of Ireland. Mm-hmm. Because it's, it's a religious holiday. So mostly people were going, having a substantial breakfast and going to church. So the first St. Patrick's Day parade originated, I can't tell you because it's part of trivia. I know. But, oh, do, psh, psh. Uh, oh, so I, I was um, curious to do the research on what they were, if they were having a feast and went to the Ballymaloe Cookery School in Cork mm-hmm. because it's run by Darina Allen, who's the most respected uh, cook in Ireland and has this beautiful cooking school. And she had a wonderful article about St. Patrick's Day quintessential dish is actually Irish bacon. Do they drink? Lightly. Lightly. <laughs> I don't think, I think it's outside of, uh, like, it's they a... They don't have Irish right? coffees? <laughs> they like to have, they use their stout to make their stews. Yeah, that would make sense. And Beautiful. on the table as well, probably. Yep, and a little glass on the table. They have a completely different style of bacon. It's closer to, it's leaner and closer to the Canadian bacon. Well, what it is, I've had it in Ireland. Oh, okay. And Tell so me. What it is, and you love this roast, right? You've bought a big pork loin roast, right? Yeah. With the baby back ribs on the back, right? All they do is they take that whole roast with the lip on it, so the fat cap on it, and they take the baby back bones off, and they cure that. Mm. And that is Irish bacon right. and English bacon. They call it back bacon. Back bacon. Can it, yeah. oh, no, and, yeah. uh, it's so that's what it is. And it's, it's cured a little bit. It's not smoked like our bacon is smoked, the applewood smoke or something like that. But it's cured like that. And then it's sliced super thin and just given a quick pan fry. And that's your Irish bacon. So 
So makes great lardon. Great what? Lardon, you know those cubes. Oh yes, yes. Cube yes. bacon, it makes good lardon. But I was pleased to see that the cabbage and potato. So how, how are the? What did they say? What did the bally? What is it? Bally Malot. Mm-hmm. What? The, how do they cook the cabbage? Is it just braised? Braised. Because you know I've been into roasting cabbage. Lately. I know, but it's boiled in uh-huh. in salty water. Mm-hmm. But the Colcannon, the the popular mixture of the cabbage with the potatoes. Right. Uh, I was thinking about you, Terry, because they use so much butter <laughs> and hot milk. They got How the, could they that got, not taste They got good? the right idea. <laughs> they also have the butter. Have you the, had that Kerrygold no, butter? Oh, it's yeah, good. so yeah. delicious. Yeah. Always, always very, on very my high. counter now. It's no, so I mean, good. It's, you can't go wrong if you put a lot of butter, some cabbage, and and some potatoes together. I mean, you're gonna have a great dish on your hand. You know, the n- nice addition for this dish, the, the bacon and cabbage, was the parsley sauce. Mm-hmm. Something to give it some real brightness. Yeah, which is probably the only herb that's available right <laughs> here, right now. Actually, my chives are coming up, too. So, uh, you know, they're going to be available very soon here. And so the parsley sauce is just uh, blended in a mortar and pestle and beaten. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously not with olive oil in Ireland, but uh, just a little bit of... Salad oil? Butter. Yeah, maybe butter. <laughs> Uh, I, I want to go back to the beverages a little bit because yes. I think I perceive Catholicism as being kind of Irish in nature, at least where I grew up. I went to Catholic school one through 12. Yes, <laughs> I'm a saint. Thank you very much. You, you talked about the, the religious celebration and the little non-parade, but I will tell you that when I was uh, 16 years old, I got a job at a liquor store in Elkton, Maryland, and uh, to their great surprise... When the bus came in from Holy Angels and St. Mark's <laughs> with the nuns and the, and the preachers on it to get their weekly whiskey whiskey and beer, I was the one taking the, the boxes out. And the nuns were looking at me like, oh, my God. They found out. They, I found out, yeah, because Mrs. Murray, who owned the store, would give them a special break. She was a good Irish Catholic. And so they all went down and bought their booze. And so I'm just saying it is part of the celebration. Well, Turns out thing. they celebrate St. Patrick every week. <laughs> <laughs> a very important saint. Before we leave the topic, for those that are craving corned beef, um, a reminder that if you want it on St. Patrick's Day, you've got to start it this weekend, right? If you're going to make it. If you're going to make it. Yeah, you probably had it. to start it a couple of days ago. Yeah, you should, you're already behind the eight ball. A ten, a six to ten days. Is oh, a, okay. I read five. Cure. Yeah, you can, you can do it in five. So, yeah, you probably have to do it. Uh, my suggestion is don't bother. There's yeah. some really <laughs> no, exactly. I'm, I'm the same way with that. I've done it, and you can go buy it at um, uh, right down the street here. Don and Joe's? Yeah, Don and Joe's, and you order it at Don and Joe's, and it will be excellent. Yeah. And you will save yourself 10, year, ten days of... Uh, <laughs> nursing it. Nursing it. There's and- really not a lot to do to make it because it sits... The, the bigger issue is that you have to have room. You know, a typical brisket is 8 to 10 pounds, we'll mm-hmm. say. And, and you have to have a five-gallon bucket for the brine. brine. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you just throw pickling spice in. It's not a hard process, but where are you going to keep that five-gallon bucket? You know, well, right now, outside would be perfect because it's cold Close, enough. yeah. I would say it's not according to the health department it wouldn't be, but well, it's, it was it's 50 degrees. It's yeah. 34. I mean, it was 50 degrees a couple of days ago. So yeah, I'm just saying you much. just have to be careful. But, yeah, that's, but that's the issue is do you have right. a place to put a refrigerated five-gallon bucket most people don't. You know, I'm desperate for the days of Market House corned beef up there at 8th and Olive. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and I have not seen their product. I had heard through the grapevine that they were coming back, but oh. I have not seen the product. So this time I had the 
down on Rainier Avenue, there's the Mondo, Mondo Meats, the Bancaro yeah. brothers, yeah. who I used to buy from in 1978, 79. Yeah. Yes, I'm, I'm that too. old. Yeah, Not 79. But, but I, I saw their product. I bought it here for my evening, my evening TV shoot. I brought it here to talk about corned beef uh, last week when we were doing the shots for it. Uh, anyway, uh, there is a local version out there, Bancaro Brothers Meats. Mm-hmm. Rainier Valley, yep, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, they use a lot of pink salt, a lot of preservatives, uh, and that's just the way it is. If you want a gray corned beef, uh, which is... No one does. Everyone, a lot of people PCC do. Probably, you do, too. PCC probably does. PCC has a gray corn, yeah. you know, like a, what they call gray, yeah. because the pink salt is what keeps it red right. when you cook it, and the gray is just uncured. So, or they're using but gray is a local, celery is a local color anyway, so that's good. <laughs> I want the pink. Really? I'm so surprised at pink that. Pink is a light. Uh, you, you do? Pamela has a little bit of quirk in her vegetarianism. Yeah, I know. Yeah. She does. Called a ribeye. Ribeye, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We're excited to welcome for two segments the very busy and very talented Kristen Kish to hear about her new National Geographic special, Taking on the Restaurants at the End of the World. I happened to watch a couple of Anthony Bourdain shows mm. uh, the other night, um, and I was just reminded how talented yeah. of a writer that guy is. I think he yeah. wrote all those segments where he kind of overdubbed the sound. Yeah. I think he did all that writing. God, what a talent. He was so there, curious. There are so many people trying to fill his slot on the airwaves. And I, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, so it's interesting to see all the different people trying. On Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. to the Hot Stove Society show on Cairo Radio. We're joined uh, on Zoom by Kristen Kish. And Pam, what, uh, what spoke to you about Kristen's adventures? Intense jealousy. <laughs> Intense jealousy together. <laughs> because, I mean, she's had such a skyrocket of a career. Uh-huh. And between Top Chef and a restaurant. And uh, are you still doing fast foodies? Uh, it's still airing, yeah. For, it is, uh, season one and two are currently still on HBO Max. That is hilarious, and we get to see your good personality through that show. And then, I don't know, I'm excited to hear how National Geographic found her for this series, and we want to hear all about it. Well, let's start there. Kristen, uh, tell us your story, being born in South Korea, and how you've made your adventures where you are today, which is in near Fairfield, Connecticut. You know, it's, um, you know, so I was born in Seoul, raised in Michigan, uh, went to school in Chicago, moved to Boston, worked around most of my culinary adulthood career there. And then from there, 
uh, opened up my restaurant in Austin, Texas, wrote a cookbook, did all the things, television shows, um, and eventually finding my way or Nagio finding their way to me. Um, and then this new show called Restaurants at the End of the World basically takes me to the, the, you know, quote, ends of earth or places off the beaten path to explore the people, the food, and basically how they do what they do. Right. So let's go all the way back to South Korea. What brought you or what have you brought from your roots to your cooking style? You know, that's a it's a complicated conversation and a relationship I definitely have with uh, my Korean roots because I was born in Seoul and I was adopted at four months old. So I was raised in Michigan, not by Korean people. And so for me, it was definitely a it's been a journey understanding who I am and where I come from and allowing myself the permission to also own that part of me where for a long time I felt quite guilty saying this is also me. Mm -hmm. Um, Clearly, I look Asian. And for those who can figure it out, Korean by (laughs) by all standards. But, you know, for me, owning that myself has been a little bit more of a journey, but I am definitely settling into it more. I'm adventurous in my playing with food um, with Korean flavors, Uh but it's not infiltrated its way completely into my professional culinary story. So what would you say your journey is uh, professionally culinarily uh, with uh, based on Michigan roots? (laughs) Mm. It's a lot of comfort food. It's a lot of Midwestern comfort, but done in a way, obviously, where I can, you know, sell it to uh, a restaurant guest for, you know, 30 bucks, 40 bucks a plate. But, um, you know, it kind of all comes from this idea of what I like to eat and understanding that comfort food is relatively universal. So everyone has or every culture theoretically has their own version of like a chicken soup, right? That brings comfort or reminds them of something or a great noodle or pasta dish, um, you know, meat and potatoes kind of thing. So that's what I really lean into is comfort. Yeah, I must agree with you. I think it's universal than soups and stews. And that's, that's totally around the world. Everybody's got one. And a lot of similarity. It starts with the chicken and then you go from there. Mm-hmm. You know, what I realized when I was opening my restaurant is this this idea of being able to, you know, we have always said food connects all of us. Right. And, and it does. It brings conversation. Everyone has to eat. But to then take it into another layer of saying, well, if there's a couple flavors I can like pinpoint and someone that I know nothing about can find some form of relatability in that single bite, then already it generates a conversation, whether we've said one word or 10 words to each other. Um, and I think that's really, you know, I like to be comforted in food in that way, like try something new, but also find something familiar and, and relatable in it as well. There's other things that transcend uh, cultures. Uh, we always say meat on a stick. Every culture has meat on a stick. Mm-hmm. Uh, every culture has some sort of dumpling or a noodle. Uh, and it's, it's, it's just kind of how we wrap it up on a plate is what makes it different. So. Mm-hmm, exactly. It's the person and the story and, and intent behind it um, that makes it something uniquely special, right. I think. Uh, so tell us about Austin. You've landed there with a, a hotel group. So <laughs> I did. So that was kind of all an accident. It was a happy accident, one that I was not aiming to have. And I'm, I'm realizing a lot of the things that happen in my life um, aren't because I wanted them. It's simply because this opportunity was kind of, I was faced with an opportunity and eventually I said yes to something. And so the restaurant in Austin, I had never been to Texas. I'd never been to Austin. Opening a restaurant wasn't something I was looking to do at that time. 
But um, I got a DM, like most great relationships start is a random DM to somebody. And it said, hey, I'm the food and <laughs> beverage director or corporate director for um, Sidel Group, which the, the hotel group has now changed ownerships, but it's still under the line hotel. Um, and they're like, well, are you interested in opening up a restaurant? We have the main space with inside the line hotel in Austin, Texas. So I went and I looked at it. I entertained it. I didn't actually think I was ever going to do it. And eventually it was just, it became um, something that I wanted. So it was this idea that turned into this thing I tried to not want. And then all of a sudden I just, I couldn't help myself. And it, it made all the sense in the world to me at that time. Mm -hmm. And do you actually work there or is it more of a, you design a menu and uh, check in? So I, 2018, June of 2018, we opened. So I officially signed on to the project in the late 2017. Um, and so I moved to Austin 2018. I lived there for two years full time, um, getting it going, training the team. Um, my very first hire was my sous chef, who is now the executive chef of the restaurant. And his the intent always, when he came in, I said, listen, I'm not gonna live here long-term. You live here, you have a family, this is your home. Um, so for two years, we are going to train you to take over. And that was the goal that we were constantly working towards. So it was a very intentional plan, but I lived there for two years full time. Mm -hmm. What's your favorite thing about Austin? You know, they're saying Austin's a little bit like Seattle right now, where it had this amazing, amazing peak. And now it's kind of like settling a bit. You know, I've seen it change in just a very short amount of time. But if I'm being completely honest with you, um, as much as my restaurant is there and <laughs> I have spent time there, um, the most I really saw was the one block radius of my <laughs> restaurant. As we all know, opening our, <laughs> opening our restaurant is all consuming. Yes, it, <laughs> and, yes, it is. Um, free time makes you like you, you want to sleep. You don't want to go do things, or at least I certainly didn't in that time. So, um, my team knows more about Austin than I do, but I'm, I know everything about that restaurant. <laughs> Sweet. Uh, let's then uh, jump into your book. Uh, you know, you've, you're kind of following a path of many chefs where you're doing restaurants, mm -hmm. books, television, media of some sort. Um, what's your book about and how do people get it? So my book, I, it's, it's been out for a long time and I guess, you know, it's something that I still love to talk about and say, this is like my book and I hope people can buy it still. Um, because when I created the book, it's simple, a very simple title for people to find. It's Kristen Kish cooking recipes and techniques. And it was driven off of, um, understanding the basics. Like we all have had to learn of the basics of what things mean in cooking terms, because once you learn those then you can really amend any recipe experiment, you have the basic foundation of cooking. Mm -hmm. Um, and that for me was kind of the goal of that book. So, you know, it is slightly more, I'd guess I'd say intermediate advanced cooking, um, but nothing's hard. It just takes time, which we all know that cooking, you know, sometimes is a lot of stagnant time, mm -hmm. idle time. Um, but yes, you can still get it. Um, I think we, the publisher may or may not be out fully of, of that print. Um, so if you probably have one, you have one of, I don't know how many, but you could probably still find them out there. <laughs> one of you don't know how many? That's a lot. I, a books. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I heard that um, Nat Geo tried to buy 300 of them from the warehouse and that uh, they didn't have all of them because we had sold out of all of the warehouse stock, so which I'm, is good news, which is good yeah, news. It's tough but, to be that popular. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah. And I'm sure you're working on number two very soon since you're doing all this traveling. <sighs> I, we don't even ask. I know, you know? I, know, I, know, I know there is something coming up. <laughs> 
I don't have currently a book in the works. Um, constantly always travel and creating recipes in your head for maybe one day of getting them published. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but my, like, we all know how long a book takes and it takes a lot of time and sure. effort. Um, something that I don't have currently. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I get that. Uh, when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Kristen. Uh, some of the segment uh, titles that are coming up in her series for NatGeoTVPressroom.com uh, is Panama's Cloud Forest Kitchen, Norway's Touch of Madness, Main Island's a Main Island Barn Supper and Brazil's flo- Floating Feast. If oh that doesn't my. get you interested in I'm, hanging yes. with us for the next segment, then I'm not sure what would. But, Kristen, stay there, and we're going to come right back here on Cairo Radio. It's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. All right, welcome back. It's the Hot Stove Society Show on Cairo. Don't forget, I'm just reminded as I watch everyone in the audience get their hot baked eggs with cheesy Mornay sauce and spinach and mushrooms and a little arugula salad with uh, Dahlia Bakery toast that it's a pretty good deal around here, 25 bucks. Coffee, Come breakfast. Down, join us. Kirsten. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, so if you want tickets, just go to hotstovesociety.com. And they've been selling out recently, so maybe you should look. We keep it uh, like a couple weeks in advance. Yeah. All right. We're going to continue our conversation with uh, Kristen uh, Kish. She has a new show coming out. And Kristen, I'm going to let you tell us where people can find your show and how to watch and all that sort of thing, because uh, it's it's diabolical. You've got so much going on that uh, you must be crazed. I am. I'm happily busy. I can't yeah. complain. Um, so the show is called Restaurants at the End of the World. The premiere episode um, will go March 21st on National Geographic. However, if you don't have the standard, you know, cable, um, it will be streaming all episodes on Disney Plus March 22nd. Okay. Um, so you can catch them all there. I have That's, Disney Plus. I don't know about Nat Geo. Well, I'm sure we can find it. I'm not worried about that. I think wherever there is a will that to travel, there is a will to watch exactly. that show. I got Disney Plus when Hamilton came out, and then I forgot to cancel it. I just keep getting the bills. <laughs> That's typically how all these streaming yeah, things. Exactly. They, only, they only get us once, forever. <laughs> so uh, I, the premise is the restaurants at the end of the world. Kind of uh, walk us through a segment and what got uh, what gets you going, what floats your boat, so to speak, when it comes to finding these places, and what do you find exhilarating about them? You know, obviously the title is Restaurants at the End of the World, and I am a chef traveling to these places, so that could lead you to believe that you know everything you need to about the show. Um, but more so than that, and, and the thing that I find, find the driving force for me and the passion is understanding and seeing how somebody else lives, right? And, right. you know, being adopted means a lot of things to me, and it also you know, never escapes me that I could have ended up anywhere with any family that decided to find me. Right. And I was chosen in that way. And so whenever I meet people or travel, whether it's for this show or not, or if there's food involved heavily or not, it's about understanding that I could have ended up in their family. And so I want to immerse myself 100% into what they want to teach me, show me, 
um, and let me live as much of their life as I can. So the restaurant, of course, we see these people and what it takes to be a kind of person to run a restaurant off the grid. Um, you know, typically the adventure starts long before I even taste the food. And, you know, I do everything from rappel down waterfalls to get watercress to diving in the Arctic um, to get Arctic char wow. and seaweed or fish glacier ice out of a uh, centuries old glacier. Um, wow. So I'm definitely on an adventure because it is National Geographic after all. So there right. is that el- element of, of physical activity. <laughs> right. This must be really cool to be going around the world with National Geographic because there's no place you're going to go where it's going to be bad. It's going to be just complete adventure from beginning to end. Plus, Well, it might be bad. They're just going to make it look good. Well, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but maybe. Maybe you're right. But, uh, but on top of that, you get the cooking part, which is really awesome. You know, like you said, mm-hmm. learning, learning the culture, the origins of, of their culture. It's so, so mm-hmm. fascinating to me. Very you know, fun. I think the beauty of a lot of this this program is that, you know, we are going to certain locations, but these people are influenced, obviously, by their surroundings and where they grow up. But a lot of it is just like this this plate of food that is so heavily infused in um, what they've needed to do in order to survive. A lot of right. them are just completely living off the land. So it's this this exercise in um, this personal creativity that you get to watch and hear this ongoing narrative of that's how they got from point A to this food on the plate that you're about to eat. Mm-hmm. One of the segments is Brazil floating fist. Mm-hmm. Do, do tell me a little bit about this because that's, that's very curious to me. Are you on a, on a la- in the middle of a lake? We are in the mo- middle of the ocean, uh, very ocean. close to one of the uh, the largest tropical fjord in the world um, called Mamangua. And it is, it is a microclimate, super biodiverse area. But what I learned from Gisela, who is our chef, you know, a lot of the seafood is, is sold out to other parts of the world in order to make money. And so a lot of the local Brazilians didn't understand what their own seafood tasted like because they're importing and exporting and, you know, ultimately having seafood that quite frankly isn't theirs um, and so we were able to to meet with these fishermen and these folks that that are starting to do and and farm or grow or find and catch all their own local supply that they are serving servicing specifically to her and she's put all these educational programs in place where they can be um, they can learn a lot of things about business, about fishing, about, you know, local activity, et cetera, et cetera, in order to, to bring up the community in a bigger way. So, Kristen, I think the title of the the uh, your series, it kind of made me think, uh, you know, about the, the new movie I'll call The, the Menu, and it's mm-hmm. how it kind of pillories these restaurants that are a little bit over the top. And mm-hmm. your your title of the show kind of thought, I thought to myself, well, is this kind of celebrating what we're also pillaring at the same time. But it, it sounds more organic than that. It sounds like these restaurants are not necessarily super highbrow, $1,000 a plate kind of places where they're more organic. You know, a lot of the restaurants weren't even set out to be a restaurant. So our premiere episode, Panama in the Cloud Forest in Boquete, um, Rolando is a, he was living in Panama City. He was a flight attendant. He wanted to move his family out into, you know, Boquete, to grow a farm, to live off the land, to raise their children. And that was why they moved and why they started doing what they did. And then, you know, he had this idea. He was like, well, 
oh my God, it's just too beautiful not to have other people enjoy it. And then he started inviting people out and creating these tours where he'd take them around the farm. They'd have a beautiful lunch and then they would hike back down to the to the base. Um, so a lo- uh, yes, very opposite of the menu. I watched it. I thought it was very accurate in a lot of ways. Oh yeah. <laughs> Things that we hate. Yes. Don't say that. <laughs> oh God. Yeah, we've all met those diners. Yes. Let's yes, be honest. And the chefs. Um, and the chefs and the too, chef. yeah. 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 Um, and ultimately, we are very much like that movie. We are most filled with joy by the things that bring us happiness and comfort, like in that in that movie, a simple burger. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of these folks are really living kind of that truth, mm-hmm. not the you know, not all that extra stuff right. around them. So there's the uh, Brazil's floating feast, which you talked about. The main island barn supper. Uh, I would suggest that you had some blueberries. You know, there were no blueberries. No way. <laughs> You're Shocking. wrong. Uh, there was lobsters. There were oysters. There were definitely lobsters and oysters. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that episode in general was, you know, a lot of these people make these decisions based off of a, a turning point in their personal life where now they're like, I'm going to go the complete opposite direction. Right. And for our subject and our chef in this instance, she's no longer there, which I think is obviously completely fine. Um, but it was a it was a stepping stone for her to get somewhere else. And as we all know, in the jobs that we've had in restaurants, some places vibe with us, some places we find value in, and some places are just kind of a pit stop or a detour to mm-hmm. teach us something as we move on. Um, and that episode also reminds me that there are places close to home because not everyone can get on an airplane and go to the floating island in the middle of Brazil's ocean. That's right. Um, and there are places worth exploring that that have something to teach you different um, that are really right in our own backyard. Perfect. I mean, you guys being in the Pacific Northwest, I mean, I mean, just the the amount of beauty and abundance that you have just off the mainland, I think, is spectacular. Oh, it's awesome. I can yeah, tell you, have having been here backyards. 45 years, it's been awesome. Kristen Kish has been our guest. She's got a new show out. Uh, on National Geographic. It's uh, called Restaurants at the End of the World. And uh, good luck to you. I hope it all Uh, goes swimmingly. And keep traveling. Keep traveling. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on. All right. Up next, Thousand Layer Duck Fat Potatoes, a new cookbook from Susan Gravely. (laughs) On Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. She eats potatoes, he eats potatoes, I eat potatoes, we all eat potatoes. Okay, here we are. So hour number two of the Hosto Society Show. Hopefully you're listening in your garden. Pam, you were talking earlier about uh, your. what are you doing in your retirement? Because all you do is this show now, once a week. So what are you doing with all your time? I like when you say all you do. That's a, you ever tried to put this show together? I, I'm actually incredibly busy because the, my last day here at Hot Stove, the executive director of the Food Bank and Senior Center, where I'm on the board and have been for six years, uh, exited. So I'm conducting the search for our new executive director uh-huh. so that I don't have to do it. <laughs> uh, There's an then, incentive there. That's good. And then the the other nonprofit that I'm on the board of, I had been ignoring because we were so busy here uh-huh. during Christmas, Washington Farmland Trust. I'm uh, head of the education committee, so I've been digging around, for, uh, educating the board because 
running a land trust is complicated yes. mm-hmm. financially and acquiring. So I've been being more conscientious about my commitments. I love it. But you, uh, yeah, you always did a good job of that, even when you were working full time. I know, we, but not enough. One of my favorite things about you. Uh, in our second hour, we're going to talk uh, a new about a new cookbook from Susan Gravely. It's called Italy on a Plate, and she is the woman who started uh, founder of uh, Vestry, Vietri, Vietri, China and stuff, or yep. stoneware, or whatever you call that, tableware, tableware, yeah. Uh, which is kind of all that lovely floral Italian. Gorgeous. If you have a chance to go online and try it, well, we'll talk about this when she comes on. Yeah. But yeah. it's a beautiful site. Gorgeous. And she's yeah. got a beautiful collection of Italians. Tell us about the French wine tasting we're going to have today. Well, uh, you know, Cyril Fréchier, mm-hmm. great sommelier for Rovers for many, many years uh, back in the days and very dear friend of mine. And uh, he's also, uh, he has a, a collection that he's bringing from France of uh, affordable, what oh, I call affordable, exciting. but delicious wine. So, you know, looking into places where the name is not necessarily uh, on the lips of everyone, like Sancerre or, you know, big name like that, where people know that name. But right next door to it, there are little jewel that um, is seeking and bringing to yeah. the forefront. So we're going to talk about that when he's on. So fun. Uh, we're going to uh, finish the hour with our Food for Thought Tasty Trivia brought to you by Rub With Love Spice Rubs and Sauces. Look for them in your local grocery store. But first, we're going to dive into a delicious picture that you can't see at home, but we can see right here in the hot stove. Mm. And it's a picture of thousand-layer duck fat potatoes. Well, well you, I don't, I don't. And it says, here's, here's a quote from my show sheet that Pam wrote. You will be gobsmacked <laughs> by, this, uh, by these potatoes. Now, I want to know how many 16-year-olds know what that means. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, for those of us who uh, flip through Instagram following our favorite food people, there I'm really rarely pause by a picture of food because it's like all looks the same. Sure. But this, Eventually. This one uh, stopped me in my tracks mm-hmm. because I love crispy, salty things. And the way I thought at first it was some new magical food phyllo layered yumminess but when i i saw because tom you turned me on to the magic of duck fat mm-hmm. with potatoes mm-hmm. but the way that this one is made you don't get a body like this by eating <laughs> steamed potatoes no. <laughs> yeah nothing nothing on it no no that's not but this um recipe originated at a steakhouse and is a popular side in london and uh it's something that I'm going to make for you. I should have made it today. Did you read how it was made? Yes. And so, uh, so tell me a little bit about it because it looks to me like when you make, uh, what's the French one where you layer the potatoes? Gratin, like yeah, potato but gratin. really thinly sliced potatoes. It looks to me that this is a roasted pan of very thinly sliced tomatoes, probably drizzled with duck fat throughout yeah. all yeah. the layers like you would a phyllo. And then um, they cut it and so now... It's, it, yeah. As a cold potato, now we pan fry exactly. it and get the crispy edge. That's exactly what it is. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, it's pressed It's pressed so that you can actually cut it and it doesn't fall apart. It doesn't fall apart. You know, because it's, it's got lots of fat. So it's pressed after it comes out of the oven. And the natural starch from the potato will stick it together Starch and pressed. fat together yeah. is going to seal it. So once that's done, you just turn your pan upside down on the, on the cutting board. Then you cut portions, and then you can freeze those ahead of time. You uh-huh. know, you can, you can prep it ahead of time. 
And then when it's time to eat, you just refry those in duck fat. Mm. And that duck fat gives it that beautiful, crispy, crispy, hard crispy on the outside, which who doesn't love, who doesn't love that? Mm-hmm. And duck and fat inside, also... Of course, the inside is full of that gorgeous melt-in-your-mouth potato that's got oozing duck fat. Uh-huh. So who doesn't like that? And duck fat offers, you know, people say, well, can I use, you know, people freak out when they hear duck fat. Why? Can I use olive oil? Can I use butter? Can I use some other kind of fat? And I would say, yeah, use chicken fat. <laughs> if you don't have duck fat. Because <laughs> no, use pork what fat. You, what you, well, use pork fat. What you're missing out is, um, and I don't think necessarily people understand when they eat it, like if you were to just give that dish of duck fat fried potatoes to 10 people, I would bet only two could tell you that there was a, a duck fat or an maybe, animal fat. Maybe. Maybe two. Because it's an umami quality about the fat. Yeah, it's a flavor. I mean, it, you just don't fat, understand where it came from. It's just, it's organically delicious. Right. And it's got a flavor that's different than pork fat or, I mean, every fat has a different flavor. So, you know, butter tastes differently and olive oil. And I mean, you can use any of the different fat. It's not... It's not just married to duck fat, but duck fat will give it a beautiful flavor that right. you wouldn't get when you were doing olive oil, for example. And it has less cholesterol than beef fat or pork right. fat or right. butter. or Cleaner. Yeah, it's, uh, it has a lower melting point. So We only have a short minute left, but Terry had a wonderful idea because this recipe, and you should look for it on Food & Wine. It was from Food & Wine magazine, Thousand Layer Duck Fat. But the process of baking it, it then gets weighted down mm-hmm. and frozen and then cut to be fried. Um, so Terry suggested, well, while you're at it, make a couple pans of it because yeah. uh, it's a complicated process. And you can have it in the freezer and then whip it out and make these beautiful little cubes. Because yeah, the way they serve it at the restaurant is in small squares, which right. I think is probably enough. Well, it's the great. more brown edge, the better. Yeah, It's great to have a... a a bag in the freezer where you can pick up a couple of potato portions and then do two, two uh, baked eggs or two sunny side up and yes. put that right next to it with a slice of bacon or, or maybe a, a little duck prosciutto <laughs> and then put that right on top. That's a nice, healthy breakfast. Personally, these are so rich. You don't really need to make yeah, a second just a pan. Just a couple slices is enough for whatever you're doing. Yeah. All right. Uh, vet, uh, the Vietri tableware founder, Susan Gravely, was inspired to write about her Italian experiences with the artisans and the cuisine of Italy. And we're going to talk about that next when we come back on Cairo. The Hot Stove Society Show 
welcome to the show. So glad to be here. So thank you so much for having me. You know, I, uh, Susan, it, it struck me when I heard your voice uh, that um, you're not from Italy. <laughs> you're right, but you should hear me speak Italian with a southern accent. All right, give it they up. Love it. Give it up. Tell oh, me yeah. how much uh, you love Chef Thierry and I in an Italian accent. <laughs> oh, con mio cuore speciale questo Thierry. Oh, mille grazie, mille grazie. Bene, bene. So you fell in love, it seems to me, with the country, the people, the the potters, uh, everything that is Italy, the culture. Uh, tell us about your your journey. Well, my journey's been pretty incredible, I must say. I came from a family in eastern North Carolina. My father was a tobacconist and bought and sold the burly, the sweet part of tobacco, started by my great-grandfather and uh, with a handshake. And uh, we always had foreigners in our home, so we always were around the table. We were always entertaining, changing the dinnerware, changing the meal, depending upon the season. And as a little girl, the only way I could stay downstairs was wear a dress and serve drinks and bring out the cigarettes for them to taste. So I did it, loved it, and really learned about how small the world was. We had a we had a globe, and Daddy would say, here is Cairo, here is India, here is Italy, here's Rocky Mountain, North Carolina. Look how small the world is. You're only a plane ticket or a phone call away. So I always felt that, and there were four of us, and we all felt it. We traveled a lot. The trip that created the atri was a trip my mother and father had planned. And unfortunately, the month he sold uh, his company, he had a heart attack and died oh, at age no. oh. Two years later, I was in New York. My sister was in Chapel Hill having her second baby. And my brothers were not invited. And Mama said, I want to take the trip your father and I had planned. So off we went. Flying Alitalia, meeting oh, my sister, who's pretty sassy, met an Italian man walking up to second class to go to the bathroom. He gave us his card. We tried his restaurants in Rome, fabulous. Went down to the Amalfi Coast and stayed at a hotel called Il San Pietro. Absolutely on your bucket list of one of the Ten wonders of the world. You go down in the hill, in the rocky mountain, the doors open, you're in a hand-carved, arched, huge room, dark tiles, white cotton-covered furniture, art on the walls, and looking out to the sea. You turn left, and there's the dining room, with, and it had peach-colored tablecloths and all this assortment of Campania dinnerware, which was the dinnerware we started the company with, which was all mix and match. I'll show you a picture. Mix and match patterns. Yeah. And this group Gorgeous. has been, yeah, been known uh, for anyone that's gone down to the Amalfi Coast, but... At the hotel, they said, we've had hundreds of people look at it and say they were going to do something, but only you started. So we hired, I mean, we hired a driver, went to the factory, used three of our vacation days 
talking about what if we bought for ourselves? What if we bought for our friends and family? What if we opened a retail store, a cooking school? Then we sat with a couple from New York who were in clothing manufacturing, and they said, you love to design too much. You love to eat on these plates. Go on and wholesale and distribute. And truly, that was the seed. That was the beginning of this company called Viatri that's 40 years old this year. Wow. Uh, congratulations. It, it, is definitely, it is definitely into all the, the uh, dinerware stores. You know, you see it in many different places, but it's different. shops, yeah. yeah I mean, you see it in Italy all over the place, too. Yeah. So. You do, exactly. It's, it's, you know, we... We it's so much fun because we design with you know we work with twenty five different factories all over Italy so they've known me for so long and my young two counterparts that they anticipate designs but we're always brainstorming forward thinking what's next and then unfortunately we have to retire things to bring in more but. We're now in over 2,000 better specialty stores and in Neiman's and Bloomingdale's. So it's been a huge adventure and an adventure that got this done. <laughs> Italy. And this Italy on a plate. On a plate. It, travel, memories, menus. And this is a combination of eight people or restaurants or places that really helped build this company. We started, I started with the story of my family. And then I uh, wrote about these families, went back over with my husband and this fabulous young team, Italian photographers. We took pictures with these families or at these restaurants. And then they shared family Italian recipes from their region of Italy uh, to be in this book. So this book is just easy, delicious recipes that are from their areas of the country. And then the last chapter is called Bringing Italy Home, and it's at our house, and their recipes, you know, for my grandmother and great-grandmother and mother. Great. It was really fun. Beautiful pictures. I mean, the, the pictures are absolutely gorgeous. I mean, I browsed through the book. I haven't had a chance to read the whole thing. And you're right, the adventure at the beginning just describing how you get there with your family. <laughs> that's beautiful. That's, that's how it should start. Any traveling, I want to be you. Exactly. Well, <laughs> thank you. Come on. I mean, I've got plenty of arms, and you can hold on to me and head out with me. So it's, yeah. it's really, really been fun. Uh, if, you, if somebody were to buy this book, uh, and there's one recipe in here that, that they, you don't want them to miss, because, you know, nobody really cooks everything in a cookbook. Uh, what recipe would you say is the, the one that they can't miss? The one that I am not out about are shortbread cookies with the essence of orange and sage. Oh, yes. yes. Oh, my gosh. The sage brings out the flavor of this explosion in your mouth. And this is a, a recipe by Francis Mays, who wrote Under the Sus Tuscan Sun. Oh, very who lives nice. In Cortona. Wow. Beautiful. Beautiful. All right. Uh, Susan Gravely has been our guest. Uh, Vietri pot, uh, Pottery or uh, <laughs> Stoneware, Earthenware or l Art or whatever Design. you want, however you want to look at it. Uh, 
It's, it can be used every day. It can be hung on your wall as an art piece. So your choice. But congratulations on your journey and your deliciousness. And thank you for joining us. Thank, thank you. you. And All the you best. Amazon.com. Amazon.com. Coming up, we have Cyril Fréchier, or sommelier that can uh, describe some wine from France. All right. Stay that's with on, us. That's on Cairo Radio, the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Come on to my house, my house, I'm gonna give you figs and dates and grapes and cakes. And come on to my house. My Summer in Paris. Summer in Paris. We are back in the kitchen at the Hot Stove Society. My God, chef, we've had thousand-layer duck-fat potatoes. We've had... Went to Italy. Went to Italy. We've been to Connecticut. North Carolina. Where are we headed now, chef? France. France. Well, I mean, Seattle, obviously, but Mm -hmm. with a French touch. So Cyril Frechier is a a big wine guru in this city for many years now. And uh, he's doing his own import of wine through his collection, Frechier Collection. And... uh, I'm going to let him tell us all about it, but he also was my best man at my wedding, so uh, oh, we were still friends. nice. We were best friends in Chicago in 1979 and moved to Los Angeles together. Uh-huh. So it's been a long, long, long time friendship, and I just thought it would be cool to just talk about what he's up to, because I think what he's up to is uh, definitely what people are looking for. So, Cyril, welcome to the show, and tell us what you're doing. Thank you so much. Uh-huh. Um, so, yes, I... Um Lost my position um, with a fairly large distributor um, at the onset of um, COVID, so and that kind of kind of spurred me to do something that I've been thinking of doing for for over 20 years was to start my own uh, my own importing uh, wines, and uh, so I started that in 2020. I joined actually an existing couple partners that were importing Italian wines, LNG distributors. And, See, Tom, uh, not all French people hate Italians. I know, it's just That's you. It. it turns out it's just you. I know. <laughs> and then uh, they were looking to expand to, into France, so we started talking, and um, I have pretty good expect, expertise with, uh, with French wines and sourcing. And so I joined them in 2020 and then been developing a French uh, portfolio with them. My goal and my purpose is to bring you know, value wines, uh, classic Wines from classic regions, but that have uh, you know a great uh, bang for the buck as far as um, as far as the flavors goes and, and the price point. So uh, it's sometimes easier said than done. You do get to uh, there are you know multiple thousands uh, of producers in any any given regions, and uh, I would say that a lot of effort into producing wines, but they're not necessarily all that great. So you know finding finding the gems is kind of the uh, that's my goal and uh, bring those. To the market uh, in Seattle. We work mostly with Seattle market and the north and south of the area. Gems is the right word. Finding yeah. the gems. No, exactly. There's so much juice out there, so many producers that you feel lucky and honored when you find one that really lives up to its, not just the price, but when you are in a restaurant being a sommelier to say, this is the best value on my menu. And that's, right. that's awesome. Exactly. Yeah, which is, I think it's, uh, it's something that you don't find enough in, in restaurants sometimes. Uh, you know, the, the, the wine prices tend to be high to begin with. And you kind of need to, uh, I feel sometimes that you need to spend quite a bit of money in order to get you know, quality, mm-hmm. um, especially in, you know, once, once the wine gets 
onto a wine list, it's, it's the, your cost is multiplied many times over. So uh, to me, a good wine list should always have a really affordable, you know, tremendous uh, value and great wine. So that's, that's kind of my... And same thing for retail, really. So um, that's kind of my, my purpose, is to kind of uh, look for classic regions. Again, here we're going to be tasting wines from the Languedoc. I mean, this is an area that was producing wines. The Romans were actually established viticulture there, so that's over 2,000 years old. So I wouldn't say it's a, a new, new discovery, but what's happening with some of these regions is that the, the quality has been um, getting better and better uh, over the, the last... I would say about 20 years. The new um, generation is taking over? Exactly. So there's a lot of uh, kind of young, young blood coming in the, the regions. And then the focus, of course, is, on, uh, is more on quality now, especially when it comes to viticulture, because that's kind of where, where great wines start. It's, uh, it starts in the vineyard. And then hopefully if the, if the grapes are in great quality, of great quality, there's very little to do as far as winemaking. I mean, you're kind of... The less winemaking, uh, the better usually the wine, but you need to sell with great uh, base product, which would be the grapes. And then the, the value really comes in, a, it's an undiscovered sort of area from, like, say, the American market, so to speak. The Languedoc is, it's been out there for a while, but the value is in that it's not from Burgundy, right? Right, or, right. exactly. Uh, it's not from the it's Rhone. It's not selling because for thousands people, of dollars. We know those, those wines, right. whether they're good or bad, just because it's from Burgundy doesn't make it good. No. But you're not paying for the name of the region Correct. on, the, on this exactly. bottle. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, so. The, the first wine was so. Uh, as far as Languedoc is, uh, it's kind of kind of a warmer region generally uh, in terms of climate. So what you find tend to be um, wines that are a little bit richer in alcohol. You have kind of rounder, fatter uh, style of wines. And but there are some cool regions within the Languedoc, and um, which are you're higher up, you're further away inland, and where you find some really bright, you know, some some grapes with good acidity, bright flavors, um, and they do grow some really, uh, generally in terms of white wines, they tend to be fairly rich and uh, oily, whereas um, this producer that I brought, the Chardonnay, which is actually from the Limoux area, which is a little bit inland, uh, it's great. It's just, it's, so as you might know, Chardonnay comes from, I mean, some of the very best Chardonnays come from uh, Burgundy, mm-hmm. but again, it comes at a high price point, price tag, uh, and being able to find something that would be comparable to really well-made, uh, you know, inexpensive Burgundy at, at a quarter of the price. Yeah. So, and what's the label people should look for? So, this is uh, called Le Turitel, which is actually, but in the area, Turitel is a um, your limestone uh, shell that you find in the vineyard. So, which is, you know, uh, generally, in Burgundy, you do find a lot of limestone, uh, which is good for Chardonnay, kind of gives a lot of minerality to the wines. And uh, so these vineyards are, in a sense, very similar to what you would find in Burgundy, except you're 500 kilometers away or more. And, uh, and this is a um, stainless steel fermented, so no, uh, no oak. So very pure, very clean, crisp, stellar white. That's what I love about yeah. it. It's super... Exactly. It's got varietal character that is, you know, it's very It's noticeable. showing the fruit. It's showing yeah. the grape. It's not showing the wood. So it's, it's nice. Mm-hmm. I, like the sti- I like this style. And, and uh, if somebody was, I mean, where can, find you, where can you find that? So we, um, uh, we work with, uh, of course, in restaurants, but uh, with retailers, uh, we sell wines to uh, PCC, the uh, town and country uh, markets, Ballard Market, for example. It's a great, great supporter of our brands. Um, and then uh, in retailers, we have our wines at Champion. Champion Wine Cellars up in, I don't know if you've ever been there, but that's, I think, one of the, Great store. the top retailers right now in Seattle. Uh, so we, you'll find the, you find the wines here and there in the city. And then what's the other one we're trying? So the other one is actually, you mentioned Côte d'Iron, but um, so Côte d'Iron is, 
you know, everyone knows Codiron. It's a, it's almost kind of a generic appellation now in terms of name recognition. Um, and what I wanted to do with, with my Codiron uh, is find a village which was not so well known in, uh, in Seattle. So this, this is, uh, comes from a village that's called Roex. So Roex is... R-O-E-X? R-O-A-I-X. A-I-X. Roex. Uh, so it's a village that's it's northeast of uh, Avignon, so kind of up in the hills. Um, very hilly area, and you have uh, so a bit of elevations, which again gives you a, a slightly cooler climate within a, a warm zone. Um, and this, what's, what appealed to me on this particular one was that it's a, uh, there's a very high proportion of Syrah in the blend. So it's Grenache, which is always kind of the, the, base, uh, the base varietal for, for Southern Rome Reds. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Grenache comes generally at a, at a much smaller percentage in the blend, but this is almost 40 plus percent Syrah. So Syrah is going to give you a lot of lift violets, more floral uh, qualities, Body. and uh, a little more spicy, uh, black pepper kind of characteristics. So it balances out the um, the Grenache, which tends to be a little more your richer Grenache is, you know, big strawberries, kind of that those figs, mm-hmm. sometimes raisins, so those more uh, darker darker notes. So the Syrah really kind of lifts it up. And it's from that south, more southern area, so it's a little bit tastes riper, right, because yeah. of the heat. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's the uh, that is one 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 uh, you know uh, the global warming in terms of uh, of wine regions now. There's a, a big a shift into especially uh, regions that tend to blend because um, what was maybe a custom blend in the past tends to be now kind of readjusted, mm-hmm. and Syrah comes in as, as, as a, you know in the blend. It, it really kind of lifts the uh, the finish, the backup on the on the wine. So you find kind of more Syrah in the blends now from the Southern Rhone, just to kind of keep the wine from getting too heavy, too super rich. fun, super fun. Well, what pr- kind of price point are we looking at here for these? Well, for uh, for retail, re- retail you, the Chardonnay is under eighteen. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, right. Yeah. And the uh, yes, right. Roex is under 20. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Good value. That's great. See, see, Good to, me, value. to me, I think that's what this is all about. As consumers, people have traveled more and more, and they're more, more and more knowledgeable about wine. You know, they've expanded their palate from the $4 box wine to all the way mm-hmm. up to that. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's hard to find decent wine at these prices, and I think it's very cool. And, you know, bringing them all the way from France and being competitive, uh, competitive to local market is very cool yeah I think it's terrific yeah, thank you for joining us Cyril pleasure. Uh, thank yeah. you so much yep. uh, look uh, look for wines in, uh, in your favorite store there you go <laughs> and uh, we'll take a picture of these and put them on our website because I cannot pronounce them that's fine right. well we should do we should put them on the website anyway anyway there you go thank you so alright Pam can we do that <laughs> absolutely alright when we come back it's time for Food for Thought Tasty Trivia brought to you by Rub with Love Spice Rubs I'm Cairo. It's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Food for Thought Tasty Trivia, brought to you by our multifaceted line of Rub with Love spices that will fuel your creativity for a wide range of dishes. Pam, I love when you write these flowery entrances. You can find them all in our gift shop here at the Hot Stove Society or down at the Rub Shack in the market at Seatown. 
and uh, all over the place. Rub with Love is available around the Pacific Northwest in grocery stores like the Met Market, PCC, Town and Country, Market of Choice, or multiple locations of Bartell Drugs and McClendon Hardware Stores. I went and I bought some at McClendon Hardware Store in Renton the other day because I was down there and it was delicious. <laughs> if you are listening from our uh, from spring training in Arizona, you'll find your Rub with Love pantry items at any of the 11 locations of AJ's Fine Foods. And I've bought many jars there, too. All right, Pam, how do we play the game and who's playing? Well, we've got a, a theme today, St. Patrick's Day, and my favorite leprechaun, uh, Becky Guzak wrote these questions for us. So each of the contestants are going to get five questions related to St. Patrick's Day, uh, Irish history, luck, and trickery. Oh. And then we'll see who gets the most right, who our winner is. And who, our contestants are Brigitte, the famous instructor here at the Hot Stove Society. And Janelle. And Janelle. Uh, say it again, Chef. Janelle. Say it again, yeah. Chef. Janelle. Oh, I love that. pronunciation. <laughs> I'll say it again, Janelle. Oh, look at her. She's getting all tingly. She's blushing. I'm trying to make them lose, uh, you know, to just get yeah. them all. Yeah. Get them all uh, yeah. yeah. All right, Chef. Okay, Perry. I'll start with the Irish story. Let's see how good we do. Three-leafed shamrocks were believed to be used by St. Patrick to explain the Holy Trinity. But True. We're gonna... <laughs> but we're switching geographies. What does the Holy Trinity refer to in Cajun cuisine? I thought it was about the Irish story. I got this, chef. Holy Trinity in Cajun it's a, cuisine. It's a blend of spice. Uh, the trio of onion, celery, and pe- oh, bell yeah, that's, peppers that's true, as the base true. of the dish. The Brunois of the South. Never mind. Um, and uh, Becky's suggesting, do you know why they deviated from the traditional French trinity of vegetables or mirepoix? Bridget does. Yeah. Is this a question for yes. me? Yes. yes. Uh, so because what? they had bell peppers, but they didn't have the carrots. carrots. Exactly. So you're, we're giving you that one. That was and to, awesome. And to add to that, it was all swamp. So they had to grow vegetables that grew above ground. There we the go. Because the soil was too wet. Oh, good food knowledge. Number two, true or false, there is a Peruvian sweet potato called Little Green Leprechaun that has green skin and bright orange flesh. True. False. <laughs> it sounded really fun. I never I, heard of it, I, but I, I was like, that. that sounded really fun. What is the potent green herb-infused alcoholic spirit derived from fennel, anise, and wormwood? It's also known as the green fairy. Uh, absinthe? Yes, absinthe. We're giving it to you, yes. Woo! And four, oh. Oh, the fennel, of course. Uh, true or false, if Lucky Charms sold in Europe had the same ingredients as in the U.S., the box would have to contain a warning label. I'm going to say true to that. Yes, stay with your gut. Because uh, good luck does not always good luck. <laughs> uh, yellow food dice uh, five and six and red dye number 40 can be used in food sold in Europe but the products must carry a warning saying the coloring agents may have an adverse effect on activity and attention in children. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And on your luck. <laughs> and on your luck. And uh, number five, according to folklore, you get pinched on St. Patrick's Day for not wearing green because green makes you invisible to leprechauns, and they like to pinch. What is the exact measurement of a pinch 
of salt or other seasoning? A teaspoon and a half. For a pinch? Ah, I'm just going to guess something. I mean, I'm going to go all the way to... A sixteenth of a teaspoon. Okay, see, I was close. <laughs> all right. That's what you get for being godless in France. <laughs> Janelle and Bridget? We don't yeah. believe in leprechaun. True or false? St. Patrick's Day used to be a dry holiday in Ireland. False. It's, nothing's dry. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is true. Between 1903 and 1970, by Irish law, all the pubs were shut down for the day because of religious regions. This one is multiple choice. In 1759, Arthur Guinness signed a 9,000-year lease on St. James Gate Brewery in Dublin. Approximately how many pints of Guinness will be consumed worldwide on St. Patrick's Day? 7 million, 13 million, or 20 million? I'm going to say 20 million. 13 million. Number three. (laughs) True or false? There is a variety of lettuce named Little Leprechaun. True. True. Of course it's true. Who doesn't want little leprechaun? I would love that. Why there is no potatoes that's all red on the, uh, green on the outside? What happened to that? (laughs) Uh, Number four. Which famous big screen actor said, I'm Irish, so I'm used to odd stews. I can take it. Just throw a lot of onions, carrots in there, and I'll call it dinner. Was it Liam Neeson, Colin Farrell, or Pierce Bronson? I want to say Liam Neeson. Absolutely correct. Uh, finally, multiple choice. What is the heaviest green cabbage ever grown? Uh, was it 44 pounds, 97 pounds, or 138 pounds? Oh, we'll Go. take the 138. Exactly correct. Yeah. It was presented three out of five. at the Alaska State Fair three. in August 2012. Three, three, three. All right. Tom, you gotta beat three. You gotta beat three. All right. The first St. Patrick's Day parade was held on March 17, 1601, in a Spanish colony in what is now St. Augustine, Florida. Which dish might be hard to find on a menu there today? Gator tail, Menorcan chowder, or Spam Masubi? Spam Masubi. <laughs> True. Yeah. There we go. There's a tradition that started in 1952 where British government leaders gave U.S. presidents shamrocks on St. Patrick's Day. Which green preserved food was introduced that same year in the United States? Key lime pie. Peas. (laughs) Frozen peas. Bird's eye introduced frozen peas in 1952. Number three. Uh, you know I love a <laughs> rainbow of vegetables on my plate. Yes, I do. Uh, what popular Irish import would you use to represent the pot of gold to enhance a rainbow platter of vegetables? Oh, uh, Becky's Irish going. butter. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, cabbage and corned beef are considered to be a traditional uh, St. Patty's State dish. It's actually not an authentic Irish meal. If the Irish themselves didn't create it, who did? Uh, the pilgrims. <laughs> <laughs> Goofball. Irish immigrant, Irish-American immigrants. It was created to fit the budget of Irish-Americans who could not afford their homeland's favorite pork and potatoes. 
You're going to finish, uh, have the finishing word to this limerick. <laughs> okay. At the Hot Stove Society, Tom and Terry were cooking up a storm quite merry. Corned beef and cabbage, a classic dish, with soda bread and Guinness to make a wish. May the luck of the Irish be with all who are... So may the luck of the Irish, Irish be, with be with all, all that are married. Culinary. Culinary. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Becky, for making it that I lose once again. (laughs) If you want to be part of the show, you can join the community on YouTube Live at Tom Douglas & Co. Or buy a ticket to join us here in the studio at Hot Stove, like all these nice folks did. Happy to have them here today. The show is produced by Pamela Hinckley. Uh, Our technical director is Sean McFadden. Our editor at the studio is Sean Don't Call Me Del Torre. And remember, if you miss any episode of our show on Cairo, you can listen via podcast. Just subscribe with your favorite podcast app. Happy St. Patty's Day and have a wonderful weekend.